Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Thomas Edlam. Thomas is a freelance writer who holds a master's degree in applied economics from Boston College. He has written for Antiwar.com, the Foundation for Economic Education, the Future of Freedom Foundation, LouRockwell.com, and the New American Magazine, among others. He is also Communications Director for the Libertarian Party of Massachusetts. He just wrote a very interesting article for the Libertarian Institute called It's 1979, Not 2009, and we're going to discuss that today. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. You've got an interesting article on the Libertarian Institute that we will, of course, link to here. And it has to do with an event that everybody thinks is coming. There's got to be something coming because we've printed a tsunami of money over the last 14 years. And now all of a sudden, our central banker, Jerome Powell, is going to start raising interest rates dramatically. And I've heard we're going to have a 1929 style stock market crash and depression. I've heard we're going to have a melt up. What do you think is going to happen overall with the economy over the next couple of years? Well, has Powell actually said he's going to raise interest rates dramatically? I, I think the real interest rate is now at a record low if you account for inflation. Sure, the Fed has increased the rate from virtually zero to a little bit less than 1%. But if inflation goes from 5% last year to 8% this year, well, it's still a record low. And I think by the end of the calendar year, we're, we're, look, we're going to be looking at 10 plus percent. I mean, we're recording here on June 9th, the evening before they release new CPI numbers. Tomorrow morning, they'll have new, the May CPI numbers out. And it's going to show a disaster. It's going to show, I, I think, probably in the neighborhood of 1.5% CPI price inflation for 
just the month of May. That's an 18% annual rate. And probably based on what I've seen so far in June with the fuel rates, I think we're gonna have the same number in June. So I, inflation is definitely kicking up. And if you read my article, I almost buried the lead. I think next year or possibly the year after is gonna be peak inflation. So you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. Now, a lot of people are saying, yeah, I mean, prices are never going back down, but that inflation has kind of a self-correcting mechanism in that, let's just say, you know, if we're measuring the price year over year for May of 2021 coming out now, that those prices are a lot higher than the prices of January in 2021. And by September, we're going to be measuring the prices against last September's rates. So you still think that it's going to be as high as 15% next year over the prices we're paying now? Well, overall prices are going to go up based on history. Obviously, history can change. But if you look at the history of inflation in the United States and money production, the peak impact of money creation on inflation is postdated by about three years. So in the early 1970s, they printed a ton of money, but we didn't see the high price inflation until the mid-70s. And then the same thing. And then in the mid to late 70s, they they printed a bunch of money, but we didn't see peak inflation until 1980. And I think that's going to happen again here. I, th- I think next year will probably be the peak from the 2020 money creation. And, and in 2020, they increased the money supply by... 25%. That's never been done in American history. What happened in the 70s is they had two sequential years, or three, in one case, three sequential years of 10% monetary inflation. And that resulted in 10% or more price inflation. I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be a one-to-one. I don't think we're going to have 20% or 25% DPI price inflation next year it's going to be a lot more than 10%. I, I, I suspect. Wow. And what we've been used to for the last several cycles has been, okay, the Fed inflates, it blows up the stock markets. The last time around, it blew up the housing market. And then when it starts to raise rates, it breaks something. The last time it was both the stock markets and the housing market. But you don't think that the housing market is going to crash like it did in 2008. Why not? No, I don't. And it's because of inflation. In 2008, we didn't have that price inflation. So when housing prices took a dive of 10 to 15%, the prices went down, people were underwater in their mortgages. But if prices go down 10 to 15% next year, and we have 15% inflation, overall general inflation, that means the nominal price will stay about the same. And as a result, people won't be underwater on their mortgage. And moreover, because inflation is so high, it's still, and, and interest rates are still comparatively low. Negative real interest rates are at record lows and probably will continue to be at that rate through next year, even if the Fed keeps raising interest rates it still makes sense to overpay for your house. I, I, know, I know that sounds strange, but if you know every year 10% of your mortgage is going to go away, it makes sense to just 
pay, you know, pay overpay for it and not worry about it. I, I still remember I'm, I'm 56, moved out of the house when I was 22. I moved to Wisconsin and I came back and this was 1989, came back and told my dad, hey, dad, guess what? I got this great one bedroom apartment. It's uh, it's in Appleton, Wisconsin, and it's right across the river from Lawrence University. So I can visit the library whenever I want. It's only $290 a month. And my dad's face went white. That's more than my mortgage. <laughs> now, he owns a house that's now worth over $800,000. And he was paying less than $290 a month. And why? Because he bought his house in 1971 before the two big bouts of inflation. So a lot of the mortgage that he signed up to pay, the value of it, the, the, the ability to, the, the difficulty in paying it got so much easier as time went on. And I think that factor is going to prevent a housing collapse like 2008. I'm not saying there won't be more bankruptcies and everything because there always is when there's any kind of a recession and we're going to have some recessions. I, I don't think it'll be just one. I don't think there'll be just one crash. I think it. what we're looking, for, looking at is several years of stagflation where unemployment creeps up. We have uh, recessions and I, we may already be in one and not know it. I, the first quarter of 2022 uh, was negative economic growth and the recession is two sequential quarters of negative economic growth. So the quarter we're ending this month is negative economic growth and we're already officially in a recession. But I don't see it as a, a sudden, bam, it's over kind of a recession like 2008 even though it was dragged out into 2009 10 because of the Fed, I see it as more of a, they're, they're prolonging the agony with more inflation. And it's going to be difficult. I mean, the Fed has actually lowered, at least according to the latest numbers I saw on Fred, they've lowered the amount of M2 in circulation a little tiny bit. And if that keeps up, that will eventually take care of inflation. But it's going to take a while because it takes a while for the the money to go through the system and have its impact. And withdrawing the money is going to have this have the same lag. Yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. It's funny you mentioned you're 56. So am I. So I do remember the stagflation of the 70s, but as a kid, and I remember my parents being very worried about it. And I also remember that by the time of the early 90s, I was just conditioned to the idea that the economy was always bad, that even though we had some recovery in the 1980s, that people were always worried. And then at one point, it seemed like people weren't. But there was just year after year where people always seemed to be concerned, people were getting laid off. And so that kind of jibes with my memory of those years. I went through the, the 80s and the 90s expecting inflation to come back with a vengeance and greater than ever, because why wouldn't it? I But I, I didn't really think about the quantity of money in circulation versus the quantity of goods. So, I mean, we, we can increase the supply of money every year and never have any inflation. I mean, the gold standard is an example of that, right? They mine more gold every year, but in American history... When we were under the gold standard, prices fell. Why? Because 
the amount of gold entering circulation was less than the increase in the amount of goods. Sure. And that's a good segue into how do you mix in the strength of the dollar? So all during this time when our central bank has been behaving like a a spoiled child or however, whatever analogy you want, Europe has been worse. Japan has been worse. China maybe on a par. So the dollar is going up on the dollar index. That just compares it to other currencies. How does that figure into your theory here about what's going on? I'm an economist, all right? I I just got my master's from Boston College. So the first question you say is compared to what? How's the dollar doing? Compared to what? Compared to the euro? Well, they're doing the same thing we're doing. So why would people switch from the dollar to the euro? Compared to the yuan? Well, China's doing very well economically, but people tend not to trust currencies run by totalitarian states. If If you look at the 2008 crisis, one of the things that one of the things that the, the mass media said, oh, it's the flight to quality. They're going back to the dollar. But it was really like the least stinky turd in the <laughs> the, the basket of, of currencies. And that's that's where we're at. That's why that, that's why in some respects, why people are willing to in an era of eight percent inflation, probably by tomorrow we'll be talking about 10 percent inflation are willing to buy a 10-year treasury note for less than 3% annually. You know, they, they they don't know what else where else to go. And it doesn't make any economic sense. It's like throwing money away. People are doing that because they don't know where else to go. I mean, like if you if you're an investor right now, there's everything is really risky. There's there's no okay, I'm going to do something nice and safe and and build up you know, maybe a stock index fund but Gold, mm, gold holds its value, but it's not really a growth fund. Bitcoin, well, I mean, it's shown wide swings and I think it will continue to. Maybe it'll go up. I mean, there's there's so many risky investments out there. A lot of people are just going to, well, I know the federal government will pay me back a little bit less and I don't want to keep it under my mattress. I, I don't know what they're thinking is. A lot of that is institutional rules as well that a number of stock funds or, or retirement funds have a requirement to have a certain percentage of their funds in bonds. So where else do you go? Do you, you, know, you don't want to buy Greek debt. You don't want to buy debt from other countries. So you, you buy U.S. debt. I, I, it doesn't make any sense, but that's the world we live in. Yeah, I, I agree. And I guess what I'm thinking is that because let's just concentrate on Europe because they've been so bad. And I think they're still doing QE or Lagarde just came out and said, maybe we're going to stop within the next month or, or whatever it is. So whatever we've done, they've done worse. And I'm wondering if that gives us kind of license to, uh, in other words, the landing is a lot softer for us just because we haven't been as bad, as bad as we've been. We haven't been as bad as Europe we haven't been as bad as Japan. Maybe there's smaller currencies out there, but these are the big ones we're talking about. Does that protect us at all? I guess where I'm going is, does capital leave Europe and come here and that softens some of the blow we'd otherwise feel from all the inflation we've done? Or is that not the right way to think about it? It has protected us. Let's put it that way. In the past, it has protected us. The fact that everybody else is weak. Going forward, hmm, I don't have the confidence that it will continue to do so because 
I, I think there will be other things emerging that people will go to. It may not be, it may be cryptocurrency, but it may be something else. I, I, it's only a matter of time before someone says, oh, I'm going to do a cryptocurrency that's going to be exchangeable for something solid. It could be gold. It could be, it, it could be wheat. It could be anything that is tangible. And, you know, let's face it, gold goes up and down. It fluctuates just like the cryptocurrencies do, but it's, it's a much narrower band. It may fluctuate 50% down and 100% up, but if you look at Bitcoin, the, the fluctuations are, are, are much bigger. And, because, and that's because it's not tied to anything. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and but I think people are going to be looking for alternatives to the dollar. And we've seen that a little bit with Saudi Arabia accepting other currencies than the U.S. in contrast to its history of demanding the petrodollar that will only sell in dollars. So I, I think that may happen. Or you know, we could just keep going as we are. I, I'm not sure... The petrodollar is that big a crutch for us. I mean, it's I th- it's definitely helped. It's definitely increased the demand for dollars, and we've definitely been able to offshore a lot of our money creation. I, I think one of the reasons why we didn't have a lot of inflation after the two thousand eight crisis was most of the money we printed was was bought up by the Chinese and the Japanese and the Arab oil states and Europe as a result of fear in in their own crisis and you know that's that's going to take those dollars out of domestic circulation certainly but it's hard it's hard to predict the future on those kind of things it's in fact it's i i want to say i i've hedged i hedged my bets even on saying what peak inflation is in this country i I still think it's coming next year not this year but that's based upon some computer algorithms that i've run and just eyeballing the data and looking at the history can change and variables can change just as we, we saw with, with the housing crisis. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of Peter Schiff. All right. I, I love him. When I listen to his, his podcast, which I do listen to fairly regularly, I say everything he says is absolutely hundred percent right. Economically speaking, 
but he, I listen to his predictions and I think, eh, I don't know. I don't know if he includes all of the, the variables in the equation. He sees the, the ones that the Austrians point out, but sometimes there are other variables. Like for instance, I, I, I get the impression sometimes that he thinks that all money creation is cumulative to some sort of inflation down the road. And that, you know, because everything we did from 2009 to present is creates it created inflation are by we, I mean the federal reserve Yeah, that the big crash is coming because of that. But I see the free market in the free enterprise system able to repair a lot of the damage as time goes on. And I'm not sure it's as cumulative as it, as I get the impression he believes. So I, in that sense, I'm, I guess I'm a critic and a fan. I'm holding hands with you on that. Sometimes I think Peter assumes that the world operates as rationally as he thinks, right? So (laughs) that's true. And I think we all do that to some extent. We're like, look, this is not the way it should be. Well, this is the way it is. As you said, one comment I wanted to just point out when you said against what, so that is a kind of a thing that some people that look at a lot of data might miss. Okay, the dollar's going up. Well, it's not going up at the gas station that you visit. It's not going up at your supermarket for you. And on the flip side, and I always say this, we don't give investment advice on this podcast, but <laughs> if you are looking towards maybe a correction in the stock market and, and some of those asset prices are going to go down and you hold a bunch of cash, okay, so I lost value over the last six months because inflation's 8%, so I lost 4% of my purchasing power if I go to the grocery store. But if I go and buy stocks off the NASDAQ, I increased my purchasing power. So the economy is not this monolithic thing that's all going up and down at once. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the CPI is a basket of goods, but the basket is selective based upon what the federal government thinks the average person uh, it needs or uses. So, and on, you know, Peter Schiff, you know, give him credit. He's pointed out several things that the traders on Wall Street don't always recognize the things that are going on and that a lot of the value, the inflation early on goes to the hard assets. I mean, when you think about it, whenever they create more money, they, what, what gets inflated first? It's all the hard assets. That's, that's, that's where the smart money goes. So it's, it's stocks, it's real estate, tangible things. And then after that comes the, the price increases at the grocery store, at the gasoline pump, at the, the hardware shop and all the other things. So it seems like, I think you made a reference to this, that the world is kind of splitting up into camps. Well, two things I should say. Number one, also to your point that all things being equal, why we didn't get inflation during all those rounds of QE. This was also kind of the meat of that 30-year period where country after country was ditching socialism and becoming more market-based. Not laissez-faire by any means, but I think demand for dollars was rising because all those economies were now producing a lot more goods and with the dollar as the reserve currency, that's one theory. I mean, it's just a theory, but it seems to fit the facts that you've got all these dollars being created, but you've got a lot more goods and services being created that are more likely than not going to cycle dollars at some point down the road. So 
That's one of my theories. But where I was going is now we're not going to be in a world where the dollar is the reserve. It may be the reserve for the biggest economies, but at least Russia, the so-called global south, I think China's got a foot in each camp, are trying to get off the dollar. So if we're in camps, if we just say that, the first conclusion would be, well, there'll be a lot less demand for the dollar. It won't be worth as much. But at the same time, if the euro goes down, we could get all that demand. How do you sort all that out? What do you think is going to happen in the next five years with the currency and what it does I for can't sort quality? It out. There's too many moving parts. There's too many variables. I don't know. I do know this. The United States will continue to fall as a proportion of the global economy. I mean, when you think about it, in 1945, half of the world's GDP was American. I mean, we... We bombed all our competition, but half, and it's it has been going down ever since. And you're we're not that far from China overtaking us economically. And like you said, there's a, there are a lot of countries that have come out of absolute poverty that are now wealthy countries. I mean, I think of the the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. They were super poor. Now they're advanced economies doing very well. There and it's it's not just there. There are you know we're in the next ten years. I th- I predict we'll have advanced economies in Latin America. Whether it's I don't know whether it'll be it'll be Panama or or Chile that comes into is first admitted by the IMF as an advanced economy. But we'll have and, and possibly even Africa too. There are a couple of countries that are doing quite well. Botswana is doing well. The Gambia is doing well, although they've had some political problems. Economically speaking, though, there's solid growth there in both of those countries. The There's a couple of island states off the coast of Africa that are already advanced economies. So who knows? Uh, the, the demand will continue to increase as long as new countries throw off socialism, like you say. And that'll make the United States less economically dominant, maybe not less militarily dominant, but at least less economically dominant. Sure. And we had the Asian tigers in the 90s and the early 2000s. And of course, China led the way there. But there's a tremendous amount of potential in Africa. If a renaissance like that occurred there, all those natural resources, because you still have a lot of countries that are living in 1981 when do they know it's Christmas, right? So Uh, a huge potential there for another renaissance as far as market economies go. What do you think the world looks like 10 years from now? Is it better by our standards, more capitalist and more wealthy and freer, or is it worse? I think it's better. I think it's better. The United States won't be much better right now. If you look at American per capita economic growth, real per capita economic growth, inflation adjusted, it increased by leaps and bounds throughout the 19th century, throughout the early 20th century, really even up until the 1970s, until we got rid of the gold standard. I'm not saying that that was the single cause, but we we grew very, very fast. Since the 1970s, we've grown much, much, much more slowly. But I don't see us going backwards, economically speaking, other than you know, for short intervals, like we're about to go into. And if you look at the rest of the world, yeah, there are going to be some countries that fall back, like Venezuela is definitely 
nowhere near what it was 10 years ago. But for the most part, countries are coming out of absolute poverty to middle income. And the middle, a lot of middle income countries are, are becoming wealthy countries. And I think that trend will continue. It, it won't be regular. It won't be predictable. And, and there'll be countries that'll be left behind because of their governments that are totalitarian, like North Korea or whatever. But I, I think the trend will be toward more world trade, more. And, you know, that, that was one of my earlier pieces in at the Libertarian Institute about how capitalism helps the poor. You know, one of the big complaints about in America is that a lot of large international corporations, their factories move their, they move their factories to countries with the lowest wages. It helps those countries. In my lifetime, one of the places where they used to farm off cheap labor was to Japan back in the 70s. That's where poor people worked in sweatshops or whatever. No longer. I mean, they're not in Japan anymore. Japan's standard of living is raised. Then they went to South Korea. Now South Korea is a rich country. So now they're in Indonesia and they're in India and then and they're in all of these other countries. And those countries are being lifted up right now. So I, I'm optimistic overall for the future economically. Some of the political stuff, I'm less optimistic. I, I think that you know technology offers both opportunities for freedom and opportunities for tyranny. And, and we see that with the, some of the surveillance and some of the, the, the weapons. But economically speaking, I'm, I'm still more or less an optimist of, over the long term. Yeah, yeah. America, though, we've, we've got some pain for the next few years. Right. And I guess it's really when you step back and look at the big picture, it's just like, well, okay, you guys ran up the credit card for two decades. Now you got to pay it off, right? So you can't go on a trip or what? I mean, I'm making analogies here, but in other words, we've got these recurring moderate recessions coming to kind of smooth out all of the living beyond yeah. our means we did. I mean, there's going to be a huge budget crush in Washington. And I didn't get into that in my article because I already gotten into too many other things. But when you think about it, when they raise, we have a $30 trillion national debt, 31 trillion, whatever it is. And about 20 trillion is owned by the public. So when they raise interest rates by 1%, that increases the budget deficit by $200 billion. And they're going to have to raise it five or 10%. So they're going to increase the budget deficit by several trillion dollars. And, you know, in the short term, we can run deficits in a high inflation period and not accumulate debt as a percentage of GDP because we're just like my dad with his mortgage, you know, the federal government is saying, oh, well, we're not going to pay 10% of that off. We're not going to pay 10% of that off. But it catches up to you because the interest rates are going to have to come come due. If, if you remember back to the 80s, a lot of those 30-year T-bills were 13 14% that they were selling. And they had to pay that rate well after the inflation was gone. So... That, that's going to catch up to them. And there's going to be a, a huge budget crunch in Washington because of this. The, they're going to have to really cut down on, on the spend and they're, they're going to push for more taxes, but there's only so much you can bleed out of the taxpayer without killing them. And we're pretty close to the max now. I mean, we're not at the max. I mean, they could still come up with a VAT tax. They, they could still raise 
taxes a little bit on on the top income tier a bit, I think without hurting income, we're pretty close to the max where the, where, that they can extract. So they're really going to have to cut spending over the next couple of years or face an economic disaster. And I, I predict that they're going to cut just enough to avoid, avert that budget disaster. The only time that federal spending has ever gone down during our lifetime has been when there's been a Democratic president and a Republican Congress who hates his guts. So we've had that yeah, twice. That's <laughs> and, and we're about to have a Republican Congress too, right? It's The Congress right now is pretty evenly split and pretty much everybody knows. I mean, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I want the libertarians to win, but let's face it, they're not going to run enough candidates or win enough can- candidates. But when you have the president fighting with a Republican Congress, a Democratic president fighting with a Republican Congress, that's when the most... I don't want to say budget cuts because you're right. They've never actually done any cutting. I, I think the best they ever did was Newt Gingrich in 1994 said, oh, we cut the rate of increase to less than inflation for two years. <laughs> right. And we're, they're going to have to do better than that, I think, in order to avert, avert this budget crisis. But they're, I think they're going to cut just enough to have get rid of, avoid this absolute loss of faith in credit in the United States government. I, I, I almost wish they, they wouldn't and we'd all, you know, the government would collapse. I had a theory with my friend Will Grigg a few years back about inflation, not about inflation, about immigration, because a lot of the, the skeptics of immigration said, oh, they, a lot of people come here and they, they go on welfare and, you know, they're going to collapse our government. And Will and I said, yeah, we should encourage the immigration so they would collapse the government. Yeah. <laughs> It, it was facetious. And I, it actually, it did, I looked at the numbers and it, it didn't really work out anyway. Even if we were to increase immigration, it wouldn't make much of a difference on the budget. All right. Well, Tom, I appreciate the time you spent here today. Uh, I'm going to post a link to your article. Where else can people follow you and read more of your writing and where can they follow you on social media? Okay. I, I mostly write for the Libertarian Institute. I have written for the Foundation for Economic Education and a few other places. I'm pretty active on in the Libertarian Party politics. So the LP of MA, the Libertarian Party of Massachusetts.org, I write for their blog, pretty much everything for their blog. Uh, a lot of that's Libertarian Party politics stuff, though, so not necessarily of general interest. I think that that's the best way. I mean, they could always friend me on Facebook or, or Twitter. My handle is at uh, Tedlam, T-E-D-D-L-E-M. That's about it. I um, I think if they do that, that'll be great. All right. Well, we'll link to as much of that as we can. And again, I thank you for stopping by. And please do keep chucking my work. Now that you're a credentialed economist, I appreciate the tips that you send me on Facebook privately. And those are always a great help. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, well, I, I listen to the podcast. So yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget that if you haven't already, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. There's all kinds of additional content there, including my online courses, the first of which has already been uploaded and a lot more to come. So that's patreon.com slash Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Also, if you haven't downloaded a free copy of my ebook, it's the Fed Stupid, 
then just go to itsthefedstupid.com and download a free copy for yourself. It's also available in paperback at that link. And finally, if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.